Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Wednesday, August 31st, 2022. I just want to say at the top, if you're watching on video, you might notice I'm wearing this very nice Antiwar.com t-shirt. Um, we have some new merch. I got a friend of mine who runs a site called Top Lobster. He's a graphic designer, artist who makes really good merch for podcasts, and I asked him to make some stuff for us, so he launched a shop on his site. I'm going to put the I'm going to put the link in the description, but it's really high quality stuff. We got hats, shirts, sweatshirts, stickers, coffee mugs, stuff like that. It's exciting. So if you buy something, the money will go directly to us. It's a great way to support this show and antiwar.com. And if you do buy something, let me know because I'm very excited about it and I'll be happy to hear it. Um, I might talk about it a little more at the end, but for now we have a ton of stuff to go over. So I got to get into it. The first story at the top of antiwar.com today, one year after Afghanistan withdrawal, millions of Afghans are facing starvation as the U.S. maintains sanctions. Tuesday marked one year since the U.S. completed its withdrawal from Afghanistan. While violence has significantly dropped in the country, millions of Afghans are facing starvation as the U.S. maintains sanctions and refuses to release billions in Afghan central bank reserves. So I linked to there a piece from The Economist of all places that shows how violence under the Taliban, it, it, violence in Afghanistan has significantly dropped under, under the Taliban. Uh, Martin Griffiths, he's the UN's humanitarian chief. On Monday, he spoke at the UN Security Council. He was urging donors to raise $770 million for Afghanistan aid, and he warned that 6 million Afghans are facing famine. He said that more than half of Afghanistan's 39 million people need assistance and that close to 19 million people are facing acute food shortages. He said that humanitarian aid alone is not going to solve this problem. Among the problems that he said need to be addressed are the country's banking crisis and the extreme difficulty of international financial transactions. Now, both of these problems are a result of the U.S. policy. The U.S. froze $7 billion in Afghan central bank reserves when the Taliban took over. Basically, just they had this whole infrastructure set up in Afghanistan, this banking system through the former U.S.-backed government, and they basically just yanked the carpet out from underneath and, and you know, all of the by freezing all of these funds. And now the U.S. also maintains sanctions on the Taliban and the Taliban are the Afghan government now. So that means Afghanistan is under these crippling sanctions, international banks and businesses. They're not touching Afghanistan. They're not doing any transactions with Afghanistan because of this. And this is all just exacerbating this crisis. There's other factors, of course, a drought and just poverty. Um, but you know, that has a lot to do with the fact that there's been a war in the country for the past 20 years, a brutal war. And now, um, the U.S. is in talks with the Taliban on the central bank reserves reportedly. This is what we've seen. But there's not really any sign that there's progress on this issue. I would be very surprised if we saw the Biden administration say, OK, that's good enough for us, Taliban, and release the money. Um, but hopefully there's some progress there. But I just doubt it. There's no political will to do it. Biden would come under a lot of pressure if he did, especially from right wing you know, Republicans and stuff. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, he marked the one-year anniversary of the withdrawal on Tuesday in a memorandum to Pentagon personnel. He said that the U.S.'s work is not done in the country. He said that the U.S. has to keep a relentless focus on counterterrorism in Afghanistan. 
And his memorandum came not long after the CIA launched a drone strike in Kabul, which President Biden claimed killed al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri, which that marked the first U.S. airstrike in the country since August 29th, 2021. That was the day before the U.S. finished its withdrawal. They launched a drone strike in Kabul, which slaughtered a family. It killed 10 civilians. Everybody that was killed was completely innocent, including seven children that were killed. And right after they launched the strike, they said it targeted ISIS-K fighters. General Mark Milley called it a righteous strike. And it turned out it was just a slaughter of innocent people. So that's just what we have to keep in mind when Right now, Zawahiri, it's really just the U.S.'s word that he was killed. They said they have no DNA evidence and the Taliban haven't confirmed it. Sure, the Taliban have an interest to not confirm it, even if it was true. But we just have to keep in mind, this is the U.S. government's word. That's that's the evidence of his death. But I'll let you guys speculate on that. I don't want to get into that too much here. But uh, while the U.S. has only launched one known airstrike in Afghanistan since the withdrawal, the Taliban has said that U.S. surveillance drones continue to fly over the country. And one more point I just want to make about the withdrawal. But Biden's come under all this criticism for pulling out of Afghanistan because it was a mess. And there's definitely militarily a lot of things that probably could have been done better. But the biggest mistake he made was pushing back Trump's deadline. The original deadline was May 1st. He pushed it back to September 1st. So, but anyway, a successful withdrawal, if it was a success in their eyes, in the Hawks' eyes, the U.S. would still be funding the Afghan that Afghan government that fell. And they would be funding a, a civil war, a proxy war against the Taliban. That was the idea. They were going to give them $3.3 billion in military aid each year. So that's what success would have looked like. Failure was the fact that Afghans decided to stop killing each other. And it really is amazing that how little violence there is and the fact that they just handed so much territory to the Taliban. Of course, living under the Taliban, there's plenty of bad things about that. But it's really something that there haven't, hasn't been all this violence that we expected. Even good people that wanted us to get out forever expected a pretty brutal civil war to happen at the end. But it didn't happen. But unfortunately, the U.S., is keeping these sanctions in place and just making the, the humanitarian situation much worse than it needs to be. Okay, so the next one here, Taiwan says that it fired at a Chinese drone for the first time. Taiwan's defense ministry said Tuesday that Taiwanese troops fired warning shots at a Chinese drone that was flying in airspace over Kinmen County, an archipelago of Taiwanese-controlled islands off the southeastern coast of mainland China. So it's really important to understand that this isn't this is an incident. It didn't happen near Taiwan, near the island of Taiwan. It happened in Kinmen County, which is a series of it's an archipelago controlled by Taiwan, basically on China's southeastern coast. It's on the coast of mainland China, but it's Taiwanese controlled. The Taiwanese Defense Ministry they said that three what they described as civilian drones flew over the Kinmen Islands and that Taiwanese troops fired warning flares, and that drove them away. But then later, not long after that, another drone entered airspace over Erdan, which is an island in the archipelago that's only 2.5 miles from a uh, Chinese city, in a mainland city, 2.5 miles. That's not very far. And that the Taiwanese troops fired shots at the drone, which drove it away. So this incident is the first time that Taiwan fired on Chinese drones since it began detecting them in its airspace and came after 
the Taiwanese military warned it would shoot drones down. So Taiwan has started saying that Chinese drones were flying in its airspace in this area since China launched its largest ever military exercises, which were a response to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taipei. So this is another example, another consequence of Nancy Pelosi visiting Taiwan. Taiwan is kept, uh, excuse me, China has kept up the military pressure on Taiwan as U.S. delegations keep going to visit Taipei. Arizona Governor, Governor Doug Ducey, he arrived in Taiwan Tuesday. We'll get more into that in the next story. But that's the fifth time a U.S. official visited Taiwan in the month of August. I'm pretty sure this is un an unprecedented number of U.S. delegations. I don't know for sure. I have to look more into the history of it, but I'm pretty sure this is more than we've ever seen before in a single month since the U.S. severed relations with Taiwan in 1979. But this incident, Taiwan firing at a Chinese drone, basically uh, right in mainland China, right next to mainland China, it really highlights the danger of these current tensions that were sparked by Pelosi's visit. And now there's reports that the Biden administration is preparing to ask Congress to approve a $1.1 billion arms sale for Taiwan that includes anti-ship and air-to-air -air missiles. So it's not good. And the next one, this is about the Arizona governor's visit. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey, he is a Republican. He arrived in Taiwan on Tuesday, marking the fifth U.S. delegation to visit the island in the month of August, despite Chinese warnings and military drills in the region. Ducey's visit, it will focus on semiconductors as Taiwan's largest chip maker, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Cor Corporation, uh, TSMC, is building a $12 billion facility in Arizona. And the U.S. is trying to entice Taiwan's chip makers to build more factories inside the United States after President Biden signed into law the Chips and Science Act, which includes about $52 billion to subsidize domestic semiconductor manufacturing. So Indiana's governor, they visited, he visited Taiwan earlier this month. I think this is a pretty big part of these visits from state governors is they want these, these chip makers to invest in their states. But he also met, has plans to meet with Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen, and he's also going to attend sign a memorandum of understanding between the state of Arizona and Taiwan's education ministry to cooperate on higher education. So this might not seem like much, but to China, they're very opposed to official contacts between the U.S. and Taiwanese government officials. This, to them, goes against the One China policy in Beijing's view, uh, and according to U.S. policy, Taiwan is part of China. And that they consider to be a breakaway state. So it's as if, let's say, Florida seceded from the United States and the U.S. Uh, didn't recognize its independence. And China started going over there and saying, hey, Florida, independent Florida. You know, that would be very much a provocation to the U.S. So, again, fifth delegation, Pelosi, Senator Ed Markey, Democrat from Massachusetts, he led a delegation Indiana's governor, Senator Marshall Blackburn, Republican from Tennessee, who said a lot of just uh, provocative, just um, she, she made a lot of statements, went on a little Twitter tirade when she was there, saying she was there to send a message to Beijing, making it clear that it was really just a provocation. 
was the purpose of the visit and now Ducey. So I guess this is what we're going to expect now is just a parade of U.S. politicians um, going to Taiwan. Um, the next one, we kept up this from yesterday. It's from Connor Eccles at the Responsible Statecraft. Just about how defense officials, Pentagon officials said that U.S. stockpiles, military stockpiles are dangerously low, specifically ammunition, artillery ammunition, as a result of sending all these arms to Ukraine. That so is a pretty big deal. Um, it could be them angling for more weapons, but I'm sure there's some truth to it because of just how many weapons they've been sending with zero oversight too. We don't know exactly. We don't know where these weapons and ammunition are, are really going. The next one here, Sweden's forest, Sweden's foreign minister says that negotiations with Turkey on their NATO bid are becoming difficult. Swedish foreign foreign minister Anne Lind, that's a Swedish name, so I probably didn't say that right. She said on Sunday that the negotiations with Turkey, they're becoming difficult since uh, back in July, there was a photograph that showed a group of Swedish MPs and members of Sweden's left party, which is an opposition party, holding the flags of the PKK and the YPG. And those are Kurdish militant groups that Turkey considers to be a terrorist organization. So she said, quote, negotiations with Turkey over NATO have become more difficult after deputies from the left party raised the flag of the Kurdistan Workers' Party. That's the PKK, end quote. So the U.S. and the EU have also labeled, they view the PKK as a terrorist group. They don't consider the YPG to, they, they consider the YPG to be a separate organization, but Turkey considers them both to be terrorists. And now this is, this was, Turkey initially blocked Sweden and Finland from joining NATO, from applying. And then they signed a deal with Sweden and Finland to lift their objection, allowing them to apply in this application progress to, process to begin. And their main objection was over their, what they say is Sweden and Finland's support for the PKK and other Kurdish groups. So something like this um, has upset Turkey and it could play a role in them approving their NATO membership because right now their NATO membership is being approved by each, all 30 NATO members need to approve it. And each country's legislature needs to approve it. It just happened in the Senate. I think the vote was 97 to one. Very depressing that everybody's so gung-ho about expanding NATO on Russia's border because Finland, over 800 mile border with Russia. But, but Turkey could still block it. Turkey's parliament could still block it. A big part of this deal that they signed with Turkey was over extradition. Turkey wants Sweden to extradite suspected PKK members and members of other alleged group terrorist groups. But Sweden hasn't done it yet. They, they said that they're going to extradite a man that's wanted for fraud in Turkey, but Turkey said that's not good enough. So the Swedish foreign minister, they, they just held talks on August 26th with Turkey and Finland. And she didn't say specifically what happened in those talks, but she's saying that the negotiations aren't going well. So there's still a chance that their NATO membership is blocked by Turkey. And I got this, this is according to, uh, I got this from a report from the cradle. Okay. The next one here, EU ministers are split on Russian visa ban. EU ministers gathered in Prague on Tuesday as some of the bloc's members are calling to ban all Russian tourists. This is an action that Ukraine wants Europe to take, wants the West to take, wants the United States to ban all Russians. Don't come 
into our country. That's what they want to happen. But the EU is divided on the issue. France and Germany are against the move, while some Eastern European countries and the Baltic states, they want to ban Russian travelers. When Zelensky made this call for the West to ban Russian travelers, he said that the whole population of Russia was responsible for the war and that they should be punished for it. And now this split between Western Europe, France and Germany, you know, Poland, the Baltic states, and really the British have been very hawkish too on Russia. It, it, it represents a split that's kind of been going on this whole time. France and Germany are less gung-ho about supporting this proxy war against Russia, especially Germany, because its economy is going to suffer so much from losing Russian gas. Um, so it doesn't look like the EU is going to have a blanket ban on Russian travelers. They're expected to tighten visa restrictions and make them more expensive and harder to get, which will just make Russia's, you know, people in Russia that have more money, it'll just make it, they'll be the ones that can only travel to Europe. Again, it just always, these policies just always hurt ordinary, everyday people. All right. So the next one here, Sadrists and Iraq uh, protests. So in Iraq, we saw major protests by supporters of Maqtada al-Sadr, the influential Shia cleric. And according to the Middle East Eye, 28 people were killed in the clashes. It was in Baghdad's green zone. That's where all the government buildings are and the U.S. embassy and other foreign embassies. But Sadr, he called for the violence to stop and his followers have left the area. Um, but it's just, it was some of the worst political violence in Iraq that we've seen in a few years. And it was really boiling over because they've been in a political deadlock since October of last year, since Sadr's supporters, Sadr's political party won the most seats in parliament. They couldn't form a government. He doesn't want to work with the other Shia factions that are aligned with Iran. He's more independent minded, more nationalist. And it, but it's still this, um, this, crisis still isn't solved. Thankfully, there hasn't been more violence, uh, but it's still not solved. And But Sadr, because initially a lot of people thought it was a coup because they failed to form a government. So maybe he was ordering a coup, but he made it pretty clear that he was against the violence. He said, quote, this is not a revolution because it has lost its peaceful character. The spilling of Iraqi blood is forbidden, end quote. So Sadr, he's an interesting guy because he's anti-Iran and he's anti-US. Um, but this really highlights kind of just the disaster regime uh, that US regime change was. This is the democracy that they tried to build. And um, this next one here, this is from Jeff Shogel at Task and Purpose. And it's really just reminding Americans, it's titled, As Iraq Reels from Recent Violence, It's Worth Remembering That 2,500 US Troops are still there. So there's 2,500 U.S. troops stationed in Iraq. On paper, they're there. You know, the officially they're there to help train Iraqi troops to fight ISIS. But they often find themselves. Uh, Biden has launched airstrikes against Shia militias in Iraq uh, back in 2021. He just did that in Syria. It doesn't look like he's launched any against them in Iraq recently, but. It's really just a tripwire for a major war, especially when stuff like this happens. I mean, another cla more clashes could break out. This this issue isn't solved just because Sadr says everybody go home doesn't mean it's the end of it. 
um, it just really highlights the danger of the U.S. getting pulled into uh, a bigger war in the country. All right, so the next one here, this is from Kyle Anzalone and Will... Oh, sorry, Kyle Anzalone and Connor Freeman at the Libertarian Institute. The White House is considering banning Nicaraguan imports. Washington is undergoing discussions about cutting imports from Nicaragua, according to two unnamed sources that spoke with Voice of America, a U.S. government-funded outlet. Analysts believe barring Nicaraguan imports will do serious damage to the Central American country's economy. Top officials said sanctions targeting uh, Nicaragua are under consideration because of corruption within the government of Daniel Ortega. So the Biden administration, they targeted several high-level Nicaraguan officials with sanctions. After he won the latest election, the U.S., of course, rejected the election results, as they do when somebody they don't like is elected and started imposing sanctions on the government. And it looks like they're considering, according to this report, some um, much bigger sanctions. Washington is Nicaragua's largest trading partner, buying 62% of its exports. In 2019, the U.S. imported about $4 billion in goods from Nicaragua. Voice of America reports it is unclear which which products will be targeted by the ban. But this is a way, it's just another example of the Biden administration using force, using sanctions. There's just so many countries under an enormous amount of sanctions that amount to an economic blockade like Venezuela, like Iran, like Syria, North Korea, Cuba, of course. And Cuba is the best example of how this policy doesn't work. These sanctions have been in place. The embargo has been in place since the 1960s. You get the same government there, and only the people have been hurt by the sanctions. But more seem to be in store for Nicaragua. Hopefully this uh, doesn't materialize, but... Um, it's not a good sign. And then the last one, we just have a story that Gorbachev, the last leader of the Soviet Union, he has died. Uh, he was 91 years old. And what's interesting about him is that in the past few years of his life, the last couple of years, he was warning against the tensions between the U.S. and Russia and other pow- powers like China, saying that nuclear weapons should be abolished and things like that. Uh, so I thought that was Interesting to see him say that he negotiated some arms control, uh, including the INF Treaty, which banned the development of short and medium range ballistic missiles. Him and Reagan negotiated that in 1987. But unfortunately, the Trump administration withdrew from that agreement, I think, in 2019. And that has led to, you know, just increased tensions between the U.S. and Russia and really, I think, played a role in the situation today. The Trump administration also pulled out of the Open Skies Treaty, which was a mutual surveillance treaty. It allowed Russia to fly surveillance planes over the U.S. and vice versa. It's really just a trust-building treaty because these days you got satellite images, but very symbolic stuff. Arms controls really crumbling. Right now, there's only one nuclear arms control treaty between the U.S. and Russia. It's a new start, but right now that's not really being implemented because Russia said that it suspended U.S. inspections of its nuclear weapons because their inspectors can't access the U.S. arsenal because of sanctions. That's what Russia's saying. We don't know exactly the situation, but it's not good. 
Um, but anyway, that's the show for today. You can contact us, news at antiwar.com. And actually, I just want to show you at the end the shop uh, for the new merch, if you're watching. Um, there's a lot of good stuff here, good quality T-shirts, mugs. Um, you could go there and buy stuff, and it's just a great way to support us. I'll put the link right down below. And I'm excited about it. You know, you could wear an antiwar.com shirt. It's definitely uh, something that could start a conversation. And um, just a good way to help us out and represent us. But anyway, that's the show. I will talk to you guys tomorrow with some more news.